Whoever's listening, guys, welcome back. And my name is Grayson Mann. This is the Man with the Plan podcast. Guys, welcome back, and thank you for being so patient with me, moving back into college and kind of getting this process kind of restarted. It's been interesting. I've been having to do some things for school, for work. It's been a very interesting process. Very, very excited to be back and some exciting things planned for in the future. The NFL playoffs are here, which means we will be covering NFL wildcard prediction stuff. Like, was I right? Was I wrong? My big takeaways, I originally had a different script plan where I go game by game and kind of break down the big points. But it's going to be, this is going to be posted on Thursday. So I kind of felt, okay, what are my three big takeaways? And then next week we'll do a divisional round breakdown when my schedule kind of gets back to normal. It's the back to normalcy for the first couple of weeks of getting back in this groove of things with the semester. Very, very excited about it all. And then to wrap up the show, I finally get to talk about Garrett Riley and the hire for the Clemson Tigers, what it means, the overarching themes. So, so excited about it. So if you're a subscriber, thank you so much. But a lot of my audience isn't subscribed. I believe 90% of y'all are not. So get on that. Help us reach 13,000 listeners, which we are very close to. Thank you guys so much. Let's start with some wild card takeaways. So instead of going from game to game to game, because there's a lot of them, it's super wild card weekend. It's the NFL's fun way of advertising the fact that they have more games, more advertisements, more Burger King commercials. If you're into that, uh, there's actually been a big nationwide takeover of the Whopper, Whopper, Whopper thing. It's annoying, but I it's so catchy at the same time. So they're doing a little bit of an advertising return. Burger King is trying to get back into the business, but that's not what we're talking about today. So I'm going to do my three big takeaways from wildcard weekend. There was a lot of great games, a couple snoozers, not really trying to out the Seahawks here in any way, but that was the expected snoozer of the weekend. And then we had the Bucks and the Cowboys where Prescott played the game of his life, but that's not the one we're going to focus on. I want to start with Cincinnati and Baltimore and not necessarily talking about the game. I want to take a quote from JK Dobbins and I'm going to just take the one that everyone's focusing on. We would have won this game with Lamar Jackson. Now, whether that's true or not, the Ravens have a phenomenal roster and they kept Cincinnati really in this. I think this was a game where people thought, okay, Cincinnati, Cincinnati, especially going against Tyler Huntley, this might be one where you see kind of the Bengals with the playoff experience, Burrow fresh off of a Super Bowl run. Okay, they've been here. They've done that. This is a matchup they should win and handle pretty easily. But the Ravens came to play, especially on defense, creating chaos for Joe Burrow, especially with that offensive line that's having to start with, I think, believe, they're out three starters, which makes the mixing and matching for Cincinnati and Zach Taylor. It's going to make it a very interesting combination. Jackson Carmen, and if you see the stuff around, if you're watching on YouTube, the Clemson aspect of that, I think it's pretty cool that he's going to get another shot to kind of prove himself in this level. But that's not really the discussion. We would have won with Lamar Jackson. And they, like I said, the Ravens came to play in this one. With hindsight being 2020, could they have won? Does Lamar Jackson fumble at the one-yard line on a QB sneak and have Sam Hubbard go and take it for ninety, over 90 yards for a touchdown? We don't know. We will really never know. The question is, where is Lamar Jackson going? And I think it's important to see it from both sides. Lamar Jackson, who's representing himself, had an opportunity to sign a mega contract, but I think with the Deshaun Watson numbers that were presented, he wanted and felt like he deserved those numbers as well. I think it was around $50 million a year. That he wanted and the Ravens were offering, I think, south of that. It, I don't know the whole details on that, but I know that there was a agreement on both sides or there was a negotiation on both sides to try to get something going. So they wouldn't have to worry about it at this point in time. So now Lamar Jackson is one of the more fascinating and intriguing stories of the offseason. 
Where is he going? Where is he headed? I don't know. I think I have my top candidates, and I think there's a reasonable expectation that he will probably take time to make a decision. So for the Ravens, you got to look at it this way. The last two seasons, the Ravens were 8-3 and three last year with a chance to be the number one seed in the AFC. Again, phenomenal roster. John Harbaugh, fantastic coach. There's a lot of, and if I messed up the Harbaugh's, apologies. I always get them confused, and I will probably, I don't know. But anyways, with the roster intact that the Ravens have, it would be wise for them to re-sign Lamar Jackson. The question is, how much are they willing to offer? It's kind of like this seesaw affair where, yes, they are better with Lamar Jackson, but at what cost is it going to make? Because the last two seasons, Lamar Jackson, they're eight and three in the first seed in the AFC. Lamar gets hurt. He misses the last six games. They finish eight and nine, and they miss the playoffs. This year, Lamar Jackson and the Ravens in the AFC playoff hunt. Lamar gets hurt. They lose a good portion of their games, including the playoff game, where they had a phenomenal roster, made some moves to get guys like Roquan Smith to really solidify that defense in an area where they felt they were weaker at. That's really improved the speed of that Ravens front seven. There you kind of look at it. There's leverage for both sides I have, and we actually had this discussion. I had it with Patrick last night on Cover 2, and if you're listening to us on Thursday, we had this discussion on Tuesday. If you're listening on Wednesday, it's a whole confluence of things. There's a discussion to be had on both sides. I, for one, believe the Ravens probably would be smart to pay Lamar Jackson, given that it's not a guarantee whatever first-round quarterback they would choose to draft was going to be a home-run pick like Lamar Jackson. It's not a guarantee that you'll find another quarterback with that style that can translate as well into the NFL. It's always a question mark. You never are sure when you're going to be able to hit on the next guy again. That's a question to be probably played in Jackson's favor. But I think for the Ravens, there's reasonable doubt that he's going to be able to stay healthy for the rest of his career. Now, maybe he plays 15 games. Maybe he plays 16 and rests the final one, and he's just a little banged up from here, here or there. But there is that reasonable doubt on both sides. Can Lamar play at an MVP level and stay healthy? Can the Ravens afford to let Lamar Jackson go? It's good with the old saying, if you won't pay me, somebody else will. Now, in terms of who, I'm not necessarily sure. My first guess would be the maybe the New York Jets. A lot of salary cap to play with. Had one of their best seasons in years despite being last in the division. Just need that quarterback. Now, maybe they go in a Derek Carr direction. Maybe they try to win the Brady sweepstakes that will eventually come up. It's not necessarily air. Now, I know if you're listening, my friend, who is a big Falcons fan, I'm also going to shout out Reed in this one. There is an intriguing destination with the Atlanta Falcons. They play a similar offense to Baltimore. They're in a much weaker division, and they're probably willing to cough up the money considering they have a ton of salary cap to spend, and they have a lot of weapons on offense to play with. Algier. Patterson, Drake London, Kyle Pitts. Maybe Arthur Smith finally has the quarterback to where he goes, okay, I can use these weapons now. It's a very intriguing conversation. I would love to see it. I would love to see Lamar Jackson in that kind of division, especially being close to Clemson. I would totally go to a game just to watch Lamar play in a football game. You obviously can draw the comparisons of Michael Vick, and you could potentially sell a pitch to him, and I think he'll listen. I think there's going to be a very interesting discussion when we get to March of where he ends up. Could the Ravens franchise tag him? Do they sign him long-term? Could they meet in the middle and maybe sign a two- to three-year deal where they go, okay, maybe we just got to see a little more on the health side? Because there's no doubt when Lamar Jackson is healthy, he's a top-10 quarterback in this league. The health, though, is the issue. Availability is the best ability. And it's something Lamar Jackson's starting to lose slowly and slowly.
Okay, in another sense, and let me just sit up real quick. Daniel Jones. This this weekend was about prove it or lose it for some of these quarterbacks. Daniel Jones was one of them, and he did it in a phenomenal way. I've never truly seen it like this, where a quarterback struggles for a lot of his career, and especially at the beginning where it was turnovers. It was just kind of a lack of awareness in the pocket for him. And he has this really big breakthrough this year. We got to give Brian Dable a lot of credit. But I think the big takeaway is, is now you have a discussion. The Giants, and I had this conversation, it's about a completely other thing, but how much they win in the playoffs could determine how big he's, how big of a payday he can command. Let's say the Giants go on a Super Bowl run. How much do you pay a Super Bowl winning quarterback, potentially a Super Bowl appearance quarterback, when they went 4-13 and the prior year with the same guy? They go, hey, it's the improvement, it's the transition. I was able to weather the storm and get be better because of it. Daniel Jones had over 300 yards passing, over 70 yards through the air. He was able to do it through with his arm or with his legs. He really exploited a, a weakness with the Vikings defense that I haven't seen in a long time. And not necessarily because I think the Vikings defense is good. It looked just really pedestrian for a 13-4 and four team. We've seen the negative point differential. It was on full display where the Vikings put up 24 points, which in most cases you can win against an offense in the Giants. That's not known for explosive plays, not known for having these long, consistent, sustaining drives down the field. The Giants put up 31 points, and that wasn't because of some cheap pick six or a kickoff return. The Giants earned these drives. These weren't four-play, 75-yard drives. These were 18 plays, nine-minute drives where they drove down the field. They were methodical. Daniel Jones made good decisions with the football. This was a Giants team that has a recipe and seems like if they can go into Philadelphia and do the exact same thing, now I don't think they're going to put up 31 points on the road against a really good Eagles defense. But they've got a formula now that they can really work with. Even, let's just say, let's take the Philadelphia run and let's just take the Giants potentially going to the Super Bowl and having a crazy run out of the window. There's a lot of momentum there they can take from that Minnesota game going, okay, we can have these 18-play, 15-play, 14-play drives because we can get Saquon established the offensive line is getting better Daniel Jones with play action he's making good decisions he's not erratic in the pocket he's taking care of the football there's a lot that where one game can change everything and it looks like the Giants may have their groove in their formula even if they don't go and have a success in Philadelphia I'm excited to see where this team goes especially when you look at the division the way things are panning out does Jalen Hurts have a consistent back-to-back year what do the commanders do and what's the situation with Dallas? Are they going to stay consistent? It's all really how this division always plays out in the NFC East is who can stay consistent? Philadelphia, it always it was up and then it's down. For Dallas, it's up and it's down. For the Commanders, it's whatever Dan Snyder's doing that day. So I, I think that there's a lot of potential with this team to succeed in a division that's always extremely volatile. I'm really excited to see where this goes. And like I said, one game can change everything. Okay, whew. The final one. Now, in the summer, we did a prediction series where I said that the Chargers would finish last in the division. Now, I like to swing, and sometimes I'm gonna miss. I don't play baseball, but I know that it's difficult when you got a night. Uh, you have a fat. You basically what I did was I put Degrom, and I'm for you baseball guys. I'm making a baseball reference, so. Everyone calm down. Don't don't throw, go throw an overport or something like that. But it's like I was pretty much putting on a blindfold and letting DeGrom throw a fastball at me. I wasn't going to hit, 
I really set up myself for failure there because I picked Justin Herbert to finish last in the division. Probably not my smartest move, but I had my reasons for it. And mainly it wasn't because of the roster that they had built, which is fantastic, by the way. It's because of the guy leading that charge in Brandon Staley. 27-0 in the playoffs against a first-time quarterback. Now, Justin Herbert was a first-time quarterback too, but the Chargers have a, such a better – it was such a bad matchup for the Jaguars, the pass rush, Justin Herbert, despite Mike Williams being out. It was a tough road ahead for the Jaguars, being down 27-0. The running game really wasn't kicking. It really wasn't doing too much. It had to be all in Trevor, throwing four interceptions. Does he stay in this mental groove? How does that affect the second half? The Jaguars go in 27-7. to They have one of those drives. You could really chalk up. It's a two-minute. Things are moving quickly. They're able to kind of not think about it. And I think for Brandon Staley, the thing that his has really separated him as a coach in the NFL is his willingness to be kind of the crazy one. And the, I think this was on part of my take. They made a really good segment about this. Brandon Staley is willing to be the crazy guy. He's on his own 25. I'll go for it on fourth down. We're at the 36. I'm, I'm not too sure. Let's go for seven. He wanted to be ultra aggressive and he wanted to kind of put his offense in a position to succeed. He goes, hey, I have Justin Herbert, a top five talent in this league. Why not go for it on fourth and five? Give my quarterback a chance to put us up in these situations. Let's take seven over three. Someone should make a hat about it. They have the run the darn ball hat. But hey, seven to three might be even better. I thought Brandon Staley really shied away from what made him unique as a head coach. Very, very conservative. The best moment that I can point to, they're up 30 to 20 with about seven, six minutes to go. You have an opportunity to go for it on fourth and four on the jack on your you're on the plus side of the field. You're in field goal range, but at the same time, you have an opportunity to get seven here and put Jacksonville away. 33 to 20 is still a two-possession football game. Jacksonville would be still in it regardless. It's a win for the defense to get a stop here. You go for it on fourth down. Not only if you succeed in that conversion, you take time off the clock from the Jaguars. Even if you end up failing again and having to kick the field goal, you potentially waste a minute and a half, which in this game, every second counted. Or the other option is you go up 37, 38 to 20, and you put this game on ice and you go, okay, we're good. It's done. Brandon Staley was uncharacteristically conservative, and that's what I can't stand. I think that for the Chargers, they fired Joe Lombardi, and they're going to probably take that step as kind of, hey, this is going to probably be the year for you to figure it out. But I think Brandon Staley, you add the Mike Williams disaster, which I did say on Twitter. Go follow me on Twitter for all my coverage for Clemson Athletics. But what I said about Mike Williams, who is a game changer on offense, you take him out. And then the disaster that folds up. Does Mike Williams make a big third down catch that shaves off two minutes and puts the Jaguars out of it? I don't know. But in the end, I think Staley's made these decisions here and there where they just can't get out of their own way. And I said it in the summer, and I'm so happy about it, but I'm so frustrated because a talent like Justin Herbert is being held back in Los Angeles right now, even with the great roster they have. If Brandon Staley's their head coach, they aren't sniffing a Super Bowl anytime soon. You can count on it. All right, guys, I'm going to take a short break. And then when I get back, we're going to talk about Garrett Riley. The dust has settled. And what are my thoughts on the matter? Thank you, guys. We'll be right back. I have been waiting for a long, long time to make this video. And I have been clamoring at the opportunity to be able to give my two cents. And I'm very thankful regardless because just this platform, regardless of whether one person watches it or 100, it gave me an opportunity to vent out certain things that I've that I've, normally I, 
you have a conversation with your brother, you have a conversation with a roommate or parent, and you really, sometimes your opinion, you just want to say what you want to say. And sometimes you're just like, ah, I don't know. I don't really want to repeat the same conversation that's being being had. And last week on Thursday, when just it all broke loose, the the gates opened, it was crazy. And I, I just am really thankful that I'm really able to just talk. And whoever's listening, thank you. But Garrett Riley. So we have to really backtrack for this story because the first domino that fell, and I think it was important important to say. So in 2012, Clemson, it was a real turning point, I feel, for their program. 2011, 2012, in that time frame, they had just suffered an embarrassing loss to the hands of West Virginia, Geno Smith, and Tavon Austin, 70-33. to And there was progress being made within the Clemson program. And I think people my age may not remember it as much, but I know my older audience definitely does. If they were a Tiger fan or just watching the game at the time going, man, Clemson's close. That was ugly. And it was kind of an embarrassing, one of those embarrassing losses that you go home and you reflect and you go, okay, change needs to happen. And in 20, in that off season, Brett Venables was hired as the, as the defensive coordinator from Oklahoma. He was plucked from the, it was a big, the big 12 at the time might not have been. He was plucked from Oklahoma and he was sent to South Carolina to pair up with Dabo Sweeney to fix the defense and prevent that from happening again. And it took some time for Venables to kind of get his feet on the ground, feet established, kind of plant, bloom where you're planted, as Dabo would say. But things started to change. Clemson would beat LSU in the Chick-fil-A Bowl or the Peach Bowl, however you want to call it. Clemson would go back to the Orange Bowl two years later. And I remember I had a woman sitting next to me. She was like, man, I just don't want another repeat of West Virginia. Clemson was playing Ohio State, and they're able to win and make a couple defensive stops, most notably an interception by Stephon Anthony to seal off a Braxton Miller-led Ohio State offense to really put Clemson on the map. And I always tell my friends, I always tell anyone that wants to talk about that era, and I say, hey, Clemson's not where they are today without that win against LSU and that win against Ohio State in 2012 and 2013. But the, I think the important thing you have to go back, and it's ironically, it was a decade ago, change had to be made. And when you look at the Orange Bowl against Tennessee, did necessarily change need to be made? At the time, I wasn't sure. I didn't think Dabo would necessarily make that strong of a move. And that's nothing against him. It just really isn't his MO, the loyalty, the way he kind of defends his program. It's almost It was almost unexpected. And I wasn't trying to ward it in a way that it knocks against him because what he's built special here at Clemson. But when Dabo made the move to fire Brandon Streeter after just one year of being within the promotion of offensive coordinator, I went, okay, something has clicked within Dabo. He's not messing around anymore. And I just want to give some numbers for offensive averages. In 2018, when they won the national championship with Trevor Lawrence, they're averaging 44 points a game. In 2019, when they went to the national championship, fell short against the best roster of all time in LSU. They are averaging 44 points a game. In the COVID year, they're averaging 43.5 points, 43.5 points per game. That was the COVID season where they lost to Ohio State. Tony Elliott had taken over. Trevor Lawrence and Travis Etienne, DJ Uyunglele's freshman year. And then you go to the these last two years. Clemson averaged 26.3 points per game in 2021. And they made a slight jump, averaging 33.2 points per game this season. 
But I think when you look at it, you look at those three seasons where they went to the playoff national championship, pure domination in certain aspects, over 40 points per game. 26.3 and 33.2 was not going to cut it for Dabo Sweeney. He put out in his press statement he wanted to have someone that met and not only met, but raised the standard of excellence that he's established here at Clemson. And he did so in hiring Garrett Riley, who is one of the hotter, hot, hotter names in terms of just everyone knows him now. He's one of the uh, new kids on the block. Everyone wants to get to know him. He's got the cool, he's got the new PS5 or Xbox One. Everyone wants to go to his house and play the new Call of Duty, or the new Madden. They want to see what the graphics look like. He, they're bringing a new and invent, inventive ideas. He's innovative, trying to be all, trying to get a metaphor or a saying or something. <laughs> but regardless, Garrett Riley brings something that hasn't been in Clemson in a while, and it's the importance of new blood within the program. Even if Garrett Riley, he's not coming in to completely change the culture because he, he was a fan and he had to obviously want to be a part of this. But I think the importance of having someone that can say no, that can say, hey, we did things this way at TCU. Or, hey, I had this, this scheme at SMU that really helped against this specific coverage. That kind of thing. There's that new blood in the room that can bring those new ideas that doesn't know anybody anything in that room. That's something that was very important to me when Dabo was going to make this new hire. I said, okay, who is it going to be? It's going to be Jeff Scott, who's kind of been floating around as the top candidate to replace a potential firing by for a Brandon Streeter. But Garrett Riley, Dabo went for it. He not only sent a message that, hey, I'm not messing around. The standard has to change. I think it just, and it's ironic, and I like, I, like I mentioned in our little backtrack, it was like a prologue. An orange bowl loss that may be viewed as embarrassing to others are embarrassing to him, he decided to make a change. And with Kate Klubnik, Will Shipley, Jake Brinningstool, Bo Collins, Adam Randall, he's got a lot to work with here. Riley's offenses all averaged at least 38 points a game, which was top 15 in the country at SMU and TCU. And you have your detractors who want to go, okay, well, Grayson, watch the TCU-Georgia game. I did. I saw a Georgia team that was so much faster than TCU. It, I think really shocked the country. I think we all probably should have seen it coming. Not 65 to 7 level of bad, but I watched those first couple drives and went, man, Georgia's just faster than TCU in every unimaginable way. Have we seen Georgia have a top six? Have we not seen Georgia have a top five? We, we have seen Georgia have a top five class. Pretty consistent. Have we seen TCU scratch the top 10? It shows on the field. The development, the speed, the raw talent when you lined up TCU's offensive line to Georgia's def offense defensive line. You want to invert it, go the other way with Georgia's offensive line against TCU's defensive line. It was a mismatch in every single way, every single aspect. TCU's outgunned. And I think sometimes when even if your scheme is better in the sense that, hey, I, I can draw up the X's and O's better than maybe Georgia's offensive coordinator can. But when you get some of those players that execute said scheme and the guys on the other side are first-round draft picks, top five even, it's a little difficult to be able to run what you consider to be the efficient way of doing things. So there is my little response to that. But yeah, the dust has settled on Garrett Riley. I have been able to think about it for a week. It makes me excited. My friends, my family, it's excitement. It's really invigorated some life. If you were at the Clemson basketball game on Saturday, you could tell there was a different energy, a different air 
when Garrett Riley stepped onto the court to be introduced as the offensive coordinator. Things are getting exciting, and things have changed in a different way. I'm really excited to see how things progress and develop, and I'll obviously be on this podcast to do it for you. Thank you guys for listening. As always, be sure to subscribe, like the video, do all the things. Type whether you agree with me, whether you disagree with me. If you want to see my NFL playoff breakdown video, tell me what your biggest takeaway is. I'll have the podcast clips and the full episode posted on YouTube, and then the full episode, of course, posted on all other platforms. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to hear me talk and rant about these things. I love it, and I hope you do too. Leave a rating, leave a review, do all the things. Thank you guys as always, and have a great day.